welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And I'm David, the scholar, I mean the skeptic. Excellent. Pre-show stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, excellent. So, so yeah, well, welcome back. Uh, this, this week is my week to pick up, uh, pick a topic. Um, and I uh, stated that I want to make an attempt uh, to make a claim uh, based on the evidence from messianic prophecies uh, you know and see how it comes out uh, let's see if I can make some kind of an argument based on this evidence uh, and establish a, a G belief authenticating event um, I'm coming up with this argument in real time as I've told uh, David so I don't I don't know how it's gonna turn out it, it might be a an utter failure uh, David will say it will be um, but yeah, I, I'm excited to figure this out in real time and see what I can make of this. Um, so, so before you jump in, let me uh, let me just make a quick statement because I think it's probably fair to the listeners to make it. I don't really want to make it, um, but I'm going to. So there was a, a bit of a fracas on the uh, discussion board this week, and. Uh, you know, it's a fracas. It's a discussion board. This is the internet, and uh, where people with personalities and strong opinions, stuff happens. Get over it. Um, so, I would. Um, I, I just want to say for the listening audience uh, that uh, you know, Dale and I have kissed and made up, yeah. minus, minus the kissing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I would say so. Okay, yeah. So I, I guess it's fair for the audience. Yeah, I would. I would agree. 100%. Like, I, I honestly mean it when I thank David for his rebukes. Um, I don't totally agree with it. I'm more of the mindset of, of Sarah, but I have to be mindful that, you know, D David's not lying when he says this is how I'm being perceived. Like, if, if someone I consider a, friend, a personal friend uh, really feels this way um, about me, then okay you know what something's something's wrong i don't want to be perceived that way and that that's why i i made a decision look i i want to go back to the way i was when i first started and that has to come out sincerely no, no defensive comments at all even when i think people deserve it there are um so yeah i, I made the decision to delete my account and take a take a break from commenting and i i honestly believe it was the right decision um if if i had said oh you know David, okay, you know what? I got it. I'm going to be good. I, I've done that in the past, and again, something comes up. Comes up. I mean, I guarantee you, Dave. Uh, I was in agony on Wednesday or Thursday with seeing the comments from Alan or, or you know, David R on the the shroud stuff. I, you know, I think I I might have if I had promised. Okay, I'm I'm always going to be sweet and innocent. I don't, you know, um, I don't know if I would have had the self restraint to do that. So I. I'm taking myself out of it until I can guarantee that I won't make a defensive statement or something. So I, I think I, yeah, that's why I made the decision I did. So. And I also want you guys to know this is completely Dale's decision. I actually disagree with the decision. I think you should stay on and and continue to work through and engage. So 
At no point did I. You're gonna jump. You guys are gonna jump on me, and it's gonna reflect badly on Christ. Like, like if I. It's true to all of that. It will. You will. You'll screw up. I'll screw up. We'll screw up. But that's that's how humans do, and that's how we grow. And I don't think that um, you are actually under any obligation to stay as you were when you started this. You're growing. We're all growing through this process, and. You know, people may or may not like what you grow into, but you have the right to grow into it. And, um, you know, whatever else happens, I support you. And my concern is only in, you know, people who are listening, especially not even so much the people who are on the boards, because everyone on a discussion board mostly has a thick skin. It's the people who follow but don't comment. And uh, Unbelievable is full of those. And I would like to not be full of those. I would like to be full of people who are willing to boldly come in and jump in. And I don't want people to be afraid of what might happen if they misspeak. Uh, so it it is for the more timid among us uh, that that I say, yeah, we have to we have to be mindful. Uh, when we when we impugn someone's motives, even even if we're doing it in the name of polemic or, or what have you, and I have to be called back uh, on that too because I'm a polemicist and it's very easy to go too far. And so that's my only concern. And I I um, you know I I love Dell as a son that needs spanking from time to time. Um, and it's it's too bad that I don't believe in spanking. Uh, so <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> okay. That'll be a topic for a show, maybe. <laughs> so that said, I just I just wanted to go ahead and get that out of there. And uh, with that, let the carnage begin. Okay. Okay. So. Um... Let, let me, uh, in terms of arguing, you know, it's common, you hear Christians saying, oh, there's 300 messianic prophecies, uh, and it's clear that Jesus it, it fulfills them. And, you know, you basically looking at, you know, how, when I remember growing up in Sunday school thinking, how could the Jews be so stupid? It's it's obvious, right? Um it, it's not. It, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I've studied messianic prophecies. It, it's not... It's a complicated issue, let's say. It's not obvious. If you think there are over 300 prophecies and it's all obvious um, that every person should come to it, uh, at least in my assessment of it, it it's not. Um, it takes hard work to come to that sort of understanding. And I don't even think I can establish an argument based on prophecy or messianic prophecy directly, you know, in the same way. I was making an argument for the vindication uh, prediction argument. Me and David did a show on that. There, I was. I'm, I would say I think I can actually establish this as a a case for fulfilled prophecy proper. You know, in terms of Dembski's specified complexity criteria and that sort of thing. I can't do that here. There's just too many complex variables at play um, in establishing not only what the prediction is saying and that it 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 warrants an extraordinary nature. But also the fulfillment um, itself can become complicated in certain uh, in certain cases, including uh, the virgin birth prophecy, which we're going to be talking about today. So what I want to do, just to clarify, I'm making a, a new argument. I'm, I'm inventing it on the spot. It, it's more of a nuanced um, argument based on the circumstances that 
I think I can show that there are certain um, elements within the prophecies which we can be certain of. Um, and based on those and the claims about Jesus, uh, so it's not about proving it. So with the example of the, the virgin birth, I'm going to be saying there's certain things about that we can we can show and that the claims about Jesus fulfill that verse. And then over the course of making a cumulative uh, case uh, over the next few weeks, I'm going to say, okay, well, based on that, it's G- it's got to be Jesus. Jesus is the only person who made claims that, or, or the gospel, Christianity, the Christian Jesus is the only per- messianic candidate who makes claims about himself, which fulfill these elements so it's jesus or bust and i'm i'm saying that circumstance uh is extraordinary that that's the argument i'm going to be trying to make that that alone is enough to warrant hey there this serves as a sign from god that there's something why wouldn't you would expect if it was just random and this is all there would be at least one other messianic candidate who who made claims that could fulfill these elements and that sort of thing like it wouldn't just be jesus um, so that's sort of the nuanced element of the argument. It, I don't have to prove a virgin birth. I, I'm just saying Jesus claimed it, and even the virgin part I don't need, But as you'll see. But, um, yeah, so hopefully, I hope that's clear in terms of what the argument is. It's not an argument from fulfilled prophecy. It's a, it's a circumstantial argument, and we'll see what becomes of it. Um, and it, it is going to be a cumulative case, as I've pointed out. And I know David takes issue with cumulative cases. Um, I'm going to leave that to see what he says about that. Uh, if he doesn't bring it up, I've, I've written stuff. So I'll leave a general comment with my take on, on his blog because I, I've come up with a response that I want people to see to that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, okay. So with that said, let's let's get into it. What what is the data? What what am I ta- What are these messianic prophecies that I'm talking about? And um, I'll just cover the main one of our focus is going to be Isaiah chapter seven verse fourteen. This is the famous quote unquote virgin birth prophecy. Um, so here, here's what the what Isaiah says. Therefore, the Lord Himself. Uh, she'll give sorry um, so yeah the go- the gospel of Matthew records um, saying about Jesus that Jesus fulfilled um, th- this the Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 it says this therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us the Greek word for virgin there is Parthenos um, so Skeptics will often deride that, saying Christians and Matthew totally got this wrong. It's not talking about a virgin. The, the Hebrew word in uh, Isaiah is Alma, and that's uh, what we're translating as virgin. But actually, the more probable understanding of that word is it's a young woman of marriageable age. Um, obviously, that's not mutually exclusive with it being a virgin. Um, but if you wanted a accurate translation, that is the more probable translation. It, it's not the case that Elma uh, clearly means virgin. It's it's more meaning a young woman of marriageable age. Skeptics will often say that well, they should use the word betula, the Hebrew word betula, and that clearly means virgin. And uh, I saw in David's response, he he misunderstands me. He thinks that 
the, he thinks that I'm agreeing with the skeptics on this. No, the, the skeptics are wrong. Um, Batula is just as, as vague as Alma. Uh, you, you can't make a case either way. Either word, like there was no word that would have been better to use if Isaiah wanted to mean virgin. We, we have no idea as to what it meant. And I've got uh, specific biblical examples that I can quote of the Hebrew word Batula being used where it clearly does not mean virgin. So I can, I can establish this if I need to. Um, so, yeah, from my research in it, the, of the what Hebrew scholars, both Jewish and Christian, I don't think we can know exactly what the originals, uh, you know, based on the word use alone, we can't really determine conclusively. Did it mean virgin for them or did it mean young woman? What, you know, like we, we can't establish that aspect. Um, so what can be established? So, so what is going on in Isaiah? I, th I think that we can establish that Isaiah is prophesying at minimally a the birth of a royal son, which would serve as a supernatural sign to the house of David that God is with them, uh, you know, Emmanuel. Um, so th this is that's my minimal case of what I'm trying to prove. Quite obviously, that applies to Jesus. Uh, Jesus was claimed to be God in the flesh with the incarnation. Um, Mary was a young woman of marriageable age and a virgin. You know, they're not mutually exclusive. E either way, whatever it means, Jesus is claimed to have fulfilled that verse. Um, now, David asked me to get give you context, because this is a Bible-focused show. So what, what's going on, and how do I come to this? So if you read... If you want the full context, I, I link Isaiah chapter 7 all the way through to 11, um, plus there's the song in chapter 12. The, I think you need to read all of this to understand exactly what's going on. Um, and that is controversial. Jewish scholars try to separate Isaiah 7 and 8 from that, um, but I think they're connected. Um, so anyways, what's going on in Isaiah chapter 7 at least is... Uh, King Ahaz is getting nervous because Israel um, is, along with an ally, is getting ready to invade Judah, uh, dethrone him as the Davidic descendant. He, he's in the line of King David. Uh, so get, he's, they're planning to get rid of God's ordained dynasty on earth and set up their own king instead. And King Ahaz is, is nervous, you know, oh my goodness, how do I deal with this? I'm going to be dethroned. He was considering, you know, maybe I should make an alliance with, with our other enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know, go to Assyria, they'll help me. So Isaiah, then Isaiah is called in and he says, hey, you know, God tells me relax, chillax, uh, Ahaz. Um, God is with you. He'll protect you and save his dynasty from this attack. You don't believe me? Fine. Ask for a supernatural sign. The the Bible quote is from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. That's a, that means a supernatural miracle, a sign that God will be protecting them. Ahaz rejects this and says, "I don't trust it. No, no. I, I would rather go to go to Assyria. I trust them more than God." Um, so, in response to this, this is where the prophecy comes in. Isaiah gets mad and or God gets mad through Isaiah, and Isaiah says, fine, instead of address, you reject the sign King Ahaz. 
so then Isaiah turns to to address the house of David plural, not King Ahaz uh, as an individual. This is in the Hebrew. It's it's the house of David plural. Um, to the house of David, then I will give you this supernatural sign: the birth of a royal child named Emmanuel. Um, through, you know, born through a young woman, through the Alma, uh, which is consistent with a virgin, will serve as a supernatural sign that God is with the house of David, Emmanuel. God is with us, um, or with them, technically. Uh, so that's my, that's the first case. And Jesus, of course, made the claim that he would fill that. There's nothing that contradicts that. His birth, a virgin birth is a supernatural sign, and um, he was born uh, to the house of, as the Messiah in the line of King David. Um, so he would have been considered a royal child according to the claims. I mean, we have those genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Um, so yeah, my I would say we have this minimal case that I think I can establish the Bible prophesying the Messiah should be. Jesus is claimed to fulfill it. Um, I'm not sure who, you know, David would, okay, but in order for David's case to work against my argument, fine, point to another messianic candidate who claimed to fulfill this in the same way. Um, And I know who's going to, I know how he responds to that, so I'm going to wait for that. So, okay, so, um, yeah, that's my first case. And then the other one is is kind of a lesser thing, just to do with birth. It's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Um, and this basically speaks of a Davidic king. It's on, um, the Messiah um, who would have his origins and or birth in the tiny town of Bethlehem. Obviously, in terms of interpreting that, it, there are different interpretations, and it, it's not entirely clear. Like, if you say it's a prophecy prophesying he had to be born in Bethlehem, that's the Christian understanding, and it, it's a valid one. Uh, but I don't think we can prove it. It could mean that, as Jewish scholars say, that it's saying the Messiah will be born uh, to the house of David and King David, you know, having their origins in the in King David, who was from Bethlehem. Uh, I think that's on par as an interpretation. I don't know if I could prove that, no, the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. Either way, Jesus was claimed to fulfill it. He was from the house of David, uh, and just for good measure, he was born in Bethlehem. So this does apply to Jesus, either way. Um, Now, an interesting aspect here is about the divinity. Um, And I didn't mention this with Isaiah, but there's also... Um, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 5 in that context where it, it, it describes various names the Prince of Peace, the Eternal Father it, it implies a divine nature um, for the Messiah um, in the same way with Micah 5 2 so the, the Hebrew here is the word Olam which means forever or eternity and it's saying the this Messiah who's going to have his origins and or birth in the town of Bethlehem is um has his origins in eternity. Uh, so Christians go, wow, this suggests uh, in the days of Olam, right, which means eternity. Um, wow, this this suggests his divinity, perhaps, um, because how, how could uh, the Messiah have his origins before King David was ever born? Um, so, yeah, that, 
that's something to consider. Um, I'm not I'm not going to be dogmatic on that if if David challenges that, but yeah, okay. So there there's sort of that element there. Jeez, that would be consistent with Jesus if I'm correct on that. Um, yeah, I think I think that's. So yeah, in, in closing, um, I would say this: we've we've seen that whatever else the Jewish Messiah is supposed to be, from this podcast, we know that he will be a royal son born to the house of David, in the Davidic line of descent. He would have his origins in Bethlehem from eternity, um, and his birth would serve as a supernatural sign. This this is the best nugget for me as a supernatural sign. Um, to the house of David that God is with them, Emmanuel. Um, so yeah, that, that's my first step in attempting to assemble this nuanced circumstantial argument, and I'll turn it over to David for his take. Okay. Well, so he talks about uh, making this argument in real time, and I'll be making my defense in real time. So... Um, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Um, there, there were several times through that that I wanted to interrupt and ask for clarification, um, and I did not. And uh, had I been more diligent, I would have written down notes while he was talking, and I didn't. So let's see how this goes. <laughs> um, I, I think the, the the place in your explanation that uh, peaked my interest the most was in your description of Isaiah's prophecy of the birth. And you kept calling it uh, supernatural, that he was prophesying that something supernatural. And I, and I kept listening to the words that uh, you were reading from the scripture, and it seemed like you were making a leap uh, to the supernatural that the passage does not uh, support. Uh, so I'm wondering if you're applying a little bit of headcanon there, uh, because if we can agree that the passage is not definitively version, you know, version birth, then what is the supernatural claim you think is being made? Okay, okay. So you're, we're taking turns. That um, well, I, yeah. I, before I even try to make a more full case, I just need to get some clarification there because I didn't see the supernatural in that passage. So no, that that was the point. Then no, we can't definitively rule out a virgin. Well, I understand that we can't rule it out, but we also can't rule it in. We we could rule it in, like. We can't pr- prove dogmatically that that's what it's saying, but you can't. It, it, virgin is a. But we don't have any reason to believe that's what it's saying, and that's all I'm saying. I mean, if you, if you say, well, the Christians say it's virgin, and so we'll read it back into it. That's not a very good reason. You have to have a reason from the perspective of the writer why that would be virgin, and. Uh, we don't have a good reason for that. I'm not saying that it wasn't. I don't think it was. I'm, but I'm not saying definitively that it wasn't. But I don't think I have to. You are claiming that he's making a supernatural claim. Mm-hmm. And yet you acknowledge that the word he uses doesn't uh, entirely support that. So I don't. I fail to see you making even your first point that Isaiah is making a supernatural claim about this birth. 
so no it, it does um there, there you would would you because i'm trying to understand what you're saying so you would say that the virgin birth obviously that's supernatural or miraculous. yes yes absolutely sign. supernatural yeah we can use that word yeah okay um so you're not making it okay so fine that's an equally valid interpretation of the text so why i'm saying it has to be in terms of how do i get that it's a miraculous sign you you get that right how do you get the version how do you get the version out of that verse at all it, it so my nuanced argument doesn't care I, i'm not saying i have it has to be a virgin i'm just saying it's consistent with a virgin but there could be other supernatural Okay. Let me, so let me let me let me let me try to clarify this because I, I don't want to be argumentative and I don't want to spend a lot of time on things that we're not actually arguing. If, if let me just say this quickly and then I'll okay. let you go. This is your turn, actually. So, a super supernatural a birth of a royal son could be considered supernatural in different ways other than you're born of a virgin. Um, I don't know how. However, else you want to say that, but a virgin birth is one such way that a birth could be considered a supernatural sign to the house of david that god is with them and i'll, I'll turn it over to you because it's your turn so. well that's that's fine i don't i don't mind some back and forth here because it's uh, for the sake of clarity so let's just take that term birth of a royal son um and uh, let's include the word that was used for uh version i don't or uh, young woman i don't remember what it was but it doesn't matter um now, what I want you to do uh, for me is pretend that you are back in that time and there has not been any more writings after that. There's, there's not been a New Testament. There's not been a Jesus story. All you have are these words written freshly from Isaiah's pen. What do you see? So what, I, what I'm saying is that... Isaiah, God prophesied that there would be a royal son born to a young woman. Yes, uh, yes, but do you see, would you, uh, just be honest, I, I, you know, would you, are, are you saying that if there had been no intervening history between then and now, you would look at those words and say, oh yeah, he clearly means version? No, uh, I I wouldn't know. Okay, so you wouldn't. So you wouldn't. You wouldn't think that. Correct. Okay, so not necessarily. I, okay, I, but that I that's not that. that's not a thing that would necessarily jump to your mind. You would have to have some reason to to go there. Um, that's all I'm trying to establish. And and but no one knows what the original hearers might have. We we don't. We can't say two, you know, two and a half thousand years. Well, I wouldn't have. I can say that because you know I don't I don't know Hebrew, but you know for the from what I can know, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion. Uh, that that wouldn't be my thought, even if it's a word that could be translated. That I mean, um, technically, you know, Fräulein, Fräulein in German could it's the same type of word could mean young woman it could be version but if someone said oh that Fräulein is with child i would not think oh version version birth you know that would not come to mind at all right so that, so this is why the context is important though so so number one as you have you and me and even 
every scholar living today, based on what I've read, the scholars admit on both sides that we don't, we can't have confidence as to what the original hearers thought on this word. It could have meant virgin to them. Um, and here, here's why I, th I think I could make a case that, I mean, there are various interpretations of what this sign, supernatural sign, might have been. It doesn't have to be a virgin. Um, and this is why I'm, I'm eliminating that argument. And I'm saying whatever the, whatever the sign, supernatural sign element of this birth was, we at least know that the Messiah has to have a birth from a young woman, possibly virgin, um, that is seen as a supernatural or miraculous sign. Okay, stop, stop, stop. This is what this is what I'm trying to question and, and push back on. I do not see anything in that passage that says that this would be a supernatural sign. Okay, so here, here's how I get that then. So remember the context of what's going on, right? With King Ahaz, Isaiah yes. comes up to him and says, uh, Ahaz, you're afraid because these armies are coming to dethrone you. God, guess what? God spoke to me today, and he told me he is with you. And as proof, he will give you a sign from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. W would you agree with me that, and in interpreting that, he means a, a miraculous sign from the depths of Sheol yeah. to the heights of heaven? I, I think he's saying, I'll give you a, a dang good sign. I'm not going to... You know, just it's not going to be some mundane event. Let's just say I see where you might get it from there. I I, I honestly don't know what exactly that means. Okay. Because there there are all kinds of references to um, uh, Sheol and uh, the heavens, and you know, it's it just might mean this this will be uh, momentous. It doesn't mean that it will be miraculous. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I I can't go as far as you are willing to go there. Okay, I I so so that's good then. So we we are at a crossroads then. It, it it's definitely you would agree that it, it can't be a mundane event. It it's got to be something. Oh well, no, it could be a it could be a perfectly natural event that's just very momentous. Okay. You know, um, lots of momentous things happen in the world that are not miraculous, uh, but they're still big. They're huge. It, it's so just going to change the world. It doesn't mean that it's uh, miraculous. Fair enough. So that's that's where our disagreement would be for the audience. I, I think I can, I my honest reading after seeing the scholarship and reading the full context. Um, I think it's more probable than not. I, you know, I'm not going to be dogmatic, and it, it's obvious that it has to be supernatural. Uh, but I, I do think that is my honest reading. I think it's okay. more probable that that's what it's talking about. Well, I just, I just wanted to know exactly where you were getting it from. But okay, so there's going to be this is going to be a big thing. A king is going to be, uh, a king is going to be born from David's lineage. In other words, his lineage isn't going to die. Yeah. So. It is not a. Once again, I I would say in my honest reading that doesn't mean that anything miraculous happens. I mean that's that's said and done all the time throughout history. Oh, you know this 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 king or the, you know this village or whatever is about to be stamped out by you know some some marauding hordes and you know they say take heart, this line is not going to die out here. You'll see. Great. Okay. 
uh, and then maybe it doesn't. You know, maybe maybe there's a child and they sneak the child away, and then 30 years later, this child who was raised a peasant finds out that he has royal lineage and he comes back with an army and he takes, you know, this is an old story, right? <laughs> this that's, is That's a mundane event, but you you agreed that that's not what the prophecy is. It, it, it isn't just that... Well, but I'm saying that it could be read that way. So I don't, I don't see that it has to be read any way other than that. Well, no. You, remember, you agreed with me either it's a supernatural event being prophesied or it's a momentous event. It, it can't be a mundane event. That, what you just described is a mundane okay, scenario. Well, we have a difference in agreement between mundane and uh, momentous because I think that things that can happen can nonetheless be momentous. They can be big events. They don't have to, you don't need a miracle for a thing to be a big event. Put it this way, then it, it has it had to be something that for them would demarcate something significantly. Something significant is going here that would only come to pass if God was involved, right? It's a sign that proves God is with them. Well, and okay, but I don't. There's there's only so much that I can go there either because they think that you know it's a sign from God if a woman is deemed barren and then she later has a child. Well. I don't actually trust their notion of, you know, who's barren and who's not. And so they they thought that a lot of childbirths were miraculous, that, that I would say, no, okay. it's but just a that, childbirth. But that's still, so for them, they were mistaken, perhaps, right? Well, uh, I'm so, so yes, yeah, so they could, be cons- they could be deceived into thinking that God was acting at times when it should just nature happening yeah correct it it's it's not about it's okay when we're assessing what the prophecy is it would serve as a sign to the house of david even in the time of jesus these people had this mistaken understanding let's say i'm I'm just being charitable to you pretend it's all bs you, you know pretend it's a barren woman understanding and that's the interpretation it's not about a virgin it's about barren women that's what the supernatural sign was a barren woman would give birth uh, to the royal messiah let's pretend that's the interpretation right we know today there's nothing that's that happens all the time or or something that's not a big deal It, it can happen naturally that's not a supernatural sign but to the people that the sign was given they mistakenly did think it and therefore it was a demarcated event it was seen as a um, miraculous event that only required God and that signified ah this is the Messiah um, so I can grant this their, I can be charitable and, and just grant yeah everything you say is true They're, they had a flawed understanding we understand they were stupid that's not a miracle but to them it was and that was the point of the prophecy it, okay you know, I, I'm, I don't know that I agree with that but I will be charitable and grant you that I don't I don't think at the end it's going to make that much difference but okay it, it, I think that we have a better grounds to move forward but I, I I would still say that that leaves open a lot of possibilities for this to be fulfilled uh, there there are a lot of ways that you could convince people who don't understand how the world works very well that something momentous happened and that it was from God and that this is a sign um, you know they thought everything was a sign so again I don't 
I don't see how that narrows it down to, well, this could only be Jesus. Well, clearly they, they didn't see everything as a sign. They, that's just not true. Like, I, I get that you know that, right? Like, that obviously signs were demarcated by them. They saw a difference between rain or water falling or something and, and um and like uh, um, I don't think they did. I mean, I think that if they if they really wanted it to rain and they prayed real hard and it rained, they would say that's a sign. <laughs> so I don't well, I don't how- see any evidence that they understood the world well, well enough to determine what was a sign from God and what was just nature happening. Okay, true, but there was a distinction. For them, I mean, it's obvious. It's in the text. God wouldn't make a prophecy that, hey, this will demarcate that what I'm saying is true okay. in your understanding. Sure, you're assuming um, you're assuming that God is making a prophecy, which is a you know another right. part yeah, of part of this thing. So I don't assume that. I I assume that this writer Isaiah, whoever he was, said some stuff. I don't assume that he was from God. And yeah, I don't, f- yeah, furthermore, yeah. he didn't have to. Nothing he said had to be fulfilled if he was talking about some time thousands of years later or hundreds of years later. Um, one of the one of the things about prophecy, and so this is this is something that New Testament scholars know, but they kind of stop knowing when it comes to messianic prophecy, is that prophecy was pretty much always written and spoken for the people there and it had the feature that it would be fulfilled in their lifetime or it had some important significance enough so that it would affect them in their lifetime uh and so it they weren't prophesying about us they didn't care about us they don't they don't care if david gets a promotion or not Right, that would be a useless prophecy to them. Who cares? Who's David? I don't know. It's, he's someone who's going to be born three thousand years later. So what? How, do, how does that help me grow my crops? Um, and so scholars know this, but then when it comes to messianic prophecy, suddenly everything is about what's going to happen uh, twelve hundred years later. And I I find that a little bit. Um, uh, I don't want to say dishonest, but I would say it, it moves the goalposts a little bit when you're studying prophecies. Uh, you know, when you're so and anyway. This, and this, yeah. So I see. I've got responses prepared for this. I'm trying to find them, but so um, I knew you would say this, right? Okay. It's true, and this is why this is part of the difficulty of why I don't think a, a Christian can make an argument from prophecy proper, because there are techniques that have to be used double fulfillments or or prophetic telescoping is what david was was talking about there right and you know where they they see different elements of the that were supposed to be separated in time they think it's all going to happen at once or, or this this sort of thing these are techniques or explanations that christians and jews for that matter this is a standard interpretational technique and if I were making an argument from prophecy, David would have a point. That that appears strained. I mean, come on, no. I, these guys really thought this was going to happen in their day. I, I, I mean, this this chi- child that was supposed to be born in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it, it's a common Jewish response, and I think they're right, that the Jews who heard this prophecy thought this child was coming 700 years 
before Christ was ever born. They they were not thinking, oh, okay, this is about the future Messiah that's going to be born, um, you know, 700 years later. But this is the way God God obscures his prophecy, and we're, we're not questioning why God oh, does that. Oh, Hid- Hiddenness of argument uh, no, no, raises its head again, doesn't it? Sorry? Hiddenness of God raises its, yes, raises its head again. <laughs> you can scold God for being... Uh, ambiguous or, or not being clear with his yeah, problem. He didn't want them to understand what he meant. So why say it? <laughs> he obscures it, right? He, it, it is obscured. It, it's not like it, it requires these interpretational techniques um, to get it. And this this is why it's not obvious to everyone. And people don't see Jesus. Oh, he obviously uh, fulfills this right okay so can can I can I use that to springboard into one one of my arguments that I wrote down go ahead and go ahead and finish but let me help me help me put a pin there so that I can come back to that um, so uh, the only thing I wanted uh, just to finish off then quickly is the the development of these concepts right this is kind of like a progressive revelation technique the development of the Messiah in my understanding of the scholarship I, I do think it took time to develop. So a lot of the messianic typologies, like when you point to Psalms, this this is talking about David, this isn't about the Messiah. But in Jewish thinking at, at that time, okay, the, you know, this is about the, the next, this is about the king of King David or a king and his thing, right? Like some Jews thought, think this is taught, this prophecy in Isaiah 714 was talking about King Hezekiah and say, well, Hezekiah was supposed to be the Messiah, but something went wrong. It messed up. He, he was clearly, he clearly did not fulfill this prophecy. And over time, Jews were getting this. They kept hoping the king, king, the next king, he would be the Messiah as we understand it today. He would, he would fulfill all these prophecies and bring to, bring to pass things. And every time there was this failure, they reevaluated. And eventually this became amalgamated into, this is how the concept of the Messiah, he's going to be the fulfillment of what those kings should have done. That's all along. We we now get it was talking about the Messiah the whole time. We thought it was about King David, or we thought it was about King Hezekiah in, in this case, or or you know the the child born in Isaiah chapter eight. But there's this clear tension where the Jews themselves recognize, okay, the, this guy that we thought was supposed to be the fulfillment of this prophecy is not doing the trick. He doesn't live up to the standard. And out of that, that's where this development of the concept of the Messiah starts to crystallize and that sort of thing. So you can say, well, that's just natural processes or whatever. Yeah, it, obviously God wasn't as clear with the prophecies. That seems to be his MO. He, he doesn't give clear cut. Everyone can understand it. This is this is obvious prophecies, for better or worse. That That's his, stand, his style. And so, David, you had a, a point you wanted to raise? Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, some some of some of that, uh, to be sure. Uh, the point that I wrote in the um, in the blog this week, my third point, if I if I recall correctly, was uh, that these prophecies are never presented to a, a large number of people in the mainstream of the culture. So the only people who supposedly get these prophecies 
uh, you know, it's the the outsider or the, the you know the the loaned voice crying in the wilderness or you know something something along those lines, uh, and so you can say, well, this prophecy was made for people uh, twelve hundred years later or or a thousand years later, okay, but if you say that. You still have to, I, I would think, make a case that the people a thousand years later were attuned to the prophecy and prepared to understand it. And that's still never the case uh, with prophecy. So you've got, uh, you know, who in Jesus' day looked at Jesus and said, oh, hey, that's the guy. We, you know, we've got these prophecies. We've been preparing uh, for them for a thousand years. And I've been, you know, been checking everybody who's been coming through this small town. This guy, he's the one. He's clearly the one. Even in Jesus' day, no one was saying that. And so it, it, what prophecy, what fulfilled prophecy ends up being is post hoc rationalization every single time. Okay, good. So I've, I've written, yeah. So it's true that the mainstream... Jews uh, didn't like you, you. Even you do admit that Jews obviously were the first converts. It was Jews that did find this convincing and became the first Christians. There's yes, no, but no, when? But, when? Who is? Who were the first Jews outside of Jesus' own cabal who said, "Wait a minute, that guy seems to be the Messiah." I'm, I'm looking at this prophecy. I've got the book. Let me just double check. Yeah, no, that's him. Who? Who were the people who did that? Well, that's the point. Is it's not clear, but I, I right. So nobody. That's what I mean when I say nobody recognized him that way. Okay, the Essenes did. Then, if you want to be simplistic like that, uh, the Essenes, There are prophecies that the Essenes recognized were messianic, and that applied that Christians said, "Yep, that's messianic," and it's talking about Jesus. So I, I, I could play that game if I wanted to, but here, here's the point of why I don't think you are correct that no mainstream. Jewish people or, or the leaders, Jews at large, at, at the time of Jesus, did not find Jesus convincing based on what they understood the Messiah to be. But so what? Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, that's the claim. It's it's always been that way. In the book of Isaiah itself, there's talk of this righteous remnant. The majority of Jews do not follow God. They do not understand the truth about God. They reject that even though they had actual prophets telling them hey this is what god says they reject it they worship pagan idols and that sort of thing so there is this notion even within judaism as you call it of the righteous remnant within israel so you seem to want to go well the majority didn't buy it therefore these are the no, i'm just saying the prophecy has to be for somebody at some point and it seems like uh, you can't come up with any particular point in history where people looked at the scriptures before the events happened or even during the events where they were prepared enough to say, you know, we should be expecting a Messiah right about now and we should be looking at this place and, oh, there's a guy and he looks like he fulfills these criteria. And yes, this is this is the person of prophecy. Well, at some point, someone... Ought to be prepared for that, and if they're not, I don't have much respect for the idea of prophecy. Which, by the way, I don't have much respect for the idea of prophecy. But this is this is one of the reasons why it's, it just ends up being uh, post hoc rationalization from a bunch of cultists. I don't care about that. 
So perfect. Here's where it gets into the point about the cumulative case a bit. And I do have a point I want to make before I get into that, but just as a quick, so you mentioned the timing. Wait for blog number three. I'm going to be talking, that's going to be one of my major things is that it had, the Messiah had to come uh, but before the destruction of the second temple. This puts a temp, this is going to be another part of my cumulative case. Um, so okay well that restricts future messiahs that restricts all other candidates and that sort of thing so you're right in terms of what i'm doing right now i haven't established it but that doesn't mean i don't have a plan to do that at some point okay. um, but just just before i get into the cumulative case um one one thing because I, I thought about this and i thought it was a great opportunity because i dropped the ball when we were doing this subsumability show and you were bringing up this thing about jews and that sort of thing and i I sort of fell into the trap, and I myself as well, that treating Christianity as though it's some kind of different religion, whereas Judaism, as we, those are the true guys. They've maintained the true faith. Actually, that's not that's not true. In the first place, rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism that started in the began to take shape in the second century, which didn't crystallize until I would say the medieval period with Moses Maimonides, who made the thirteen principles of faith if you if you want a judaism proper that's that's the guy I, I would go to in terms of judaism as a modern religion rabbinic judaism they are a separate religion um they do not follow they're not a part of Ju biblical judaism i would say that's christianity christianity follows biblical judaism i could make that argument and okay but there is no issue of subsumability they are the one and same religion that it's just like isaiah is in the same religion but he came centuries after moses jesus came centuries after isaiah they're all in the same stream um okay so are you are you suggesting that the pharisees uh and sadducees of jesus day were not real jews yeah uh yes uh, they weren't they weren't a part of biblical Judaism. So that would be real Jews. So they're not real Jews. Yes, if, if you, they weren't... It, if it's not biblical Judaism, it's not real Judaism. You're saying they're right. not real Jews. They weren't, they weren't a part of biblical Judaism. When you say they're not real Jews, I'm afraid, are you making a racial thing? Like, obviously, they were... Uh, look, Judaism is very complicated had, with mixing race and culture and religion, and I, I don't want to get into, you know, is this anti-Semitic or not? I just have to say the, the things, and people have to understand that I'm not anti-Semitic. So, um, Children of Abraham, gen genetically and physically, and they're part of the nation of Israel. But, well, but, but we're, we're talking about re the religion of Judaism. So no, they were not a part of the religion of, of what I'm calling biblical Judaism. Okay. So I, I think that that would be one of those um, areas where we would dispute because another one of my arguments uh, that I made is that um, you know what Christian what Christians are doing with their prophecies is uh, conducting a hostile takeover of Judaism and uh, Christians do not listen to Jews as to what their sacred texts meant and what those prophecies meant because Christians don't care what Jews think their scriptures meant the Christians uh, decide what the scriptures meant and they tell the Jews what what it means if the Jews don't agree then the Jews aren't real Jews uh, I think that I think that that is um, 
in, in a kind of an atrocious way to go about it. Uh, the Jews, what do you what do you think that they have followed uh, the biblical teachings or not? This is their experience and their legacy, and uh, they they get the first right to say what they think their own words mean. Uh, so I that's the oh, I'm sorry I'll shut up. Well, I mean, look, I so I I, I think when Christians come in. And say, no, you don't get to say what your scriptures mean. We will tell you what they mean based on what we need them to mean. Then then um, I, I think that that is a problem with a dominant culture trying to suppress and subsume a lesser culture. And I have some small... Uh, experience of that so it it feels a lot like that when uh, when i hear christians talk about the jewish prophecies i mean just you know have have you looked into for for instance in your research what jews say about these prophecies and have you have you considered them at all yes i have could you talk a little bit from that perspective uh yeah which which, uh, so, as I said, Rabbi Tobias Singer, that in terms of the virgin birth, there are at least four different interpretations. Um, one of them is that it's about King Hezekiah. They, they'll claim, well, actually, this isn't a future tense prophecy. It's past tense. It's talking about Hezekiah. Um, another, another one more popular is, oh, well, it's future, um, but it's about in the immediate future, and there's... You know, either someone born born to the royal line. There's another interpretation that, oh well, this is going to be a child born to a prostitute, um, and obviously, some Jews will say in Isaiah chapter eight, and I'm not going to say his name. I, I don't may her and then he has a a long, a dang long name. Um, they'll say, well, this is what this prophecy is talking about. This, this is the child that was foretold. See, he was born. Um, but that's where I was getting into the fact where, but that doesn't that doesn't work. It doesn't work with Hezekiah. It doesn't work with Maher because they don't live up to the fulfillment of but, the prophecy. But why can't you accept the idea that the prophecy is just wrong? I maybe, maybe in fact that maybe that was the prophecy, and it just ended up like so many other prophecies unfulfilled. So I can right so. Remember, my, my argument that I'm making here is circumstantial. I'm saying it's it's got it. When I finish my case, it's going to be Jesus or bust. You can take the bust option and say, well, the, it's all a crock. The, these are all there. Of course, there are errors in it uh, because the Bible has errors. But my circumstantial argument is, is sort of taking, okay, well, Orthodox Jews and Christians, let's take a biblical inerrancy perspective. And can we establish the circumstance that under that perspective, it's Jesus, Jesus is the only messianic candidate that can make a claim. But why would we even take a biblical inerrancy perspective? Because you want to see what you can make of it. But obviously, well, if you're not a biblical inerrantist, I, that seems like a very strange experiment to do. <laughs> why would why would you even want to do that? Why would why would you not just take the the first most logical 
most likely option that this was a prophecy made by someone of their time and it didn't pan out. And the, it period. Why why is that not a viable option? In fact, why is it not the most viable option? So it is, it is a viable option, but I'm establish I'm trying to establish an argument to see okay, let let's let's just see what what can be said based on what we know about the Messiah, pretending it's not an error. Uh, like obviously you could say there was no uh, it's just an error that there is going to be a supernatural sign from God or you know or or that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem if you want to say Micah five two means that of course you can as a skeptic you're allowed to say that's an error but well, but you could say I that also, as a scholar too I don't I mean there's no there's nothing uh, eliminating that as a, as a scholarly uh, view so you have, either you have to be charitable to what what my argument is it's a nuanced argument and it okay it's a nuanced fail. argument though that asks us to start at a certain place that and i'm trying and i'm trying to do that but i, I want the audience to understand this sure. is yeah. this we're yeah. not starting at a you know at the starting line <laughs> we're, we're starting halfway through lap four yeah and and i think that's fair so i'll, I'll agree with david then so for, for example, in blog three, I mentioned, okay, well, part of my case is going to be, I'm going to be saying that the Messiah has to come uh, before the, the destruction of the second temple. This is going to be part of my circumstantial argument. Well, as a skeptic, of course, you can go, yeah, but that's just, okay, so that's just an error, right? If I was trying to make an argument from prophecy that it's, you know, it's got to be Jesus or, or sorry, if I was trying to make it an argument from fulfilled messianic prophecy proper then of course you you have that option um but it, on this circumstantial argument i'm trying to say well let, let's let's see what can be said if if we don't take that if i can prove the bible does say the messiah had to come before that time and jesus is the only one who fulfills who came during that time and fulfilled the other stuff in my cumulative case and there aren't even any other messianic. Like, can you claim the same about Bar Kokhba? No. Uh, can you cl claim about the Maccabee brothers? Uh, no. Um, it looks like it's weird. Why is it only Jesus that can even make a claim? I mean, claims are easy to make. Like, not even one other person who claimed to be the Messiah even claimed these things about himself. Uh, so that that's the circumstantial argument that you might you know, this is my attempt to make the best of what I can because I know that I can't make a direct argument from prophecy and that seems to be what you're wanting me to do. I already okay. admit I failed. So I we, we we have hit uh, uh, an hour right right up against it, but there were there were some things in the blog, and if you haven't read the blogs, it's skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com uh, there's, there's some good uh, writing in there, and then uh, Dale also wrote some stuff. Um, so, I <laughs> so I won't. I'm I'm just setting this up so that we can take a little bit more time because the things I, there are a couple of things in that that I want you to address. Um, one of them was the Emmanuel thing, so you can take a few minutes to address that if you. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it, and um, the other one, I have. Oh, uh, it wasn't in the blog, but it was in our earlier conversation. Uh, 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 self-fulfilling prophecy. 
um, where a person can take these things that you would claim to be prophetic. And I use the example of Mary, you know, having some loose understanding of scripture. She would have been in a little present. She may not, may not have even heard them. I don't know. Maybe she heard them as children's stories. But th- the fact is, maybe, you know, she, she finds herself pregnant. She needs to uh, come up with a story. And so she says, wait a minute. We're near Bethlehem. <laughs> How about this? Uh, God made me pregnant, and I'm a I'm actually a virgin. And what what did he say his name was going to be? Yeah, I'll call him that. So that would be that would be uh, an example of self fulfilled prophecy. Do you have any way at all of distinguishing, uh, you know, miraculous claims? Uh, miraculous fulfillment from just that kind of self-fulfilled prophecy. So if you could address those two things, uh, sure, we can take a little bit more time. Okay. Okay. Uh, so starting with the self-fulfilled prophecy, th- this is an objection that only applies to an argument from prophecy. And of course, David is absolutely right that self-fulfilled prophecies wouldn't count as a G-belief authenticating event. Um, just with his his scenario, though, about what Mary did, I, I would say that, uh, and this leads into a second point, that's not what happened, actually, because he, she got the name wrong. She called him Jesus. It's supposed to be Emmanuel. So, I, I mean, I could play that game. Um, and, and that's sure. Not, I hope you do, uh, because I want you to address that. <laughs> sure. So that's my next point. Uh, actually, Mary didn't get it wrong, though, because Emmanuel that it doesn't mean that he actually has to have the name Emmanuel. It's the same with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5. There are four, uh, there are different names there for the Messiah in, in Isaiah 9, 5. And I I, per, I was going to talk about that, but I, I excluded it because it was there's too much. So I'm just like, whatever. But the, this is one of the Messianic prophecies that speaks of the divine nature, according to Christians, uh, of the Messiah. Now, here's the Jewish counter and I think the Jews are somewhat right but if you want to be a skeptic well one of those names is the eternal father Jesus is God the son he's not God the father so I guess it's a failed prophecy haha um, but that's that's you not following Jewish scholarship I mean it, it's not that to be taken literally it, it's it's can be interpreted in a way that it's and this is from Jew I'm talking about Jewish non-christian scholars here um, so in Egypt, right? There's, they would give throne names to the royal son or the royal king. They would give them four different names, which could either describe properties or attributes they wish to instantiate in these kids. Uh, that's what's going on in Isaiah chapter nine, verse five, and it's the same with Emmanuel. It, it Emmanuel means God with us, and, and that's what this sign is meant to say: is that this birth is a supernatural sign that God is with you, with the house of David, protecting you. So. That's what the name, it's a, it's a representational name. This is my my interpretation I, that I think the verse is talking about. I'm following Jewish scholars on, on that much, right? And, and Christians also say the same thing. Uh, otherwise, they'd have to say there's an error since Jesus wasn't named Emmanuel. Um, but yeah, like this isn't, contra- that's that's how Matthew understood it. I mean, he, he quotes the name. He doesn't see a contradiction between it, right? So. You just need to understand what those names are in an ancient Near Eastern context. It was in, done all the time. Which sure. the when, when did the Jews call Jesus God with us? They reject. So they reject. They didn't. Okay. 
Just checking. Well, Peter is a Jew. He did. So there you go. <laughs> uh, like, what, you do admit, do you recognize that there is a righteous remnant? The, the Old Testament that the Jews uh, themselves use, right? The Jews that you're pointing to today and saying they, they think Jesus is ridiculous. Uh, could point to Pincus Lapid, maybe, but he, he's got a, a quirk where he's the Gentile Messiah, not the Jewish Messiah. So that wouldn't work necessarily, even that. But what the heck was I saying? Um, Something about remnants and, and all that. This righteous. is what, once again, this is kind of the claim of all prophecy, though. Uh, the, the reason you don't understand is because you've, you've traveled far from our ways. Uh, our people have been lost to, you know, their, their sins. But, but you, uh, you know, could possibly understand this prophecy if you bend your mind in this way and pay me 30 shekels. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is just prophecy. It's, it's a, it's a thing that nobody at the time understands. Nobody at the time when it's supposedly fulfilled is, uh, understands. And it's left only in the hands of a few people who, uh, get to be the sole, uh, arbiters, interpreters of what that prophecy is. And in this case, it's not even the people to whom the prophecy was given. So, but that, that doesn't. No, it, it was. It was given to the people. I mean, they, the early Christians were part of the nation of Israel. They were Jews. Stop, stop excluding them as though, though there are some separate religion. But there are, there is. An well, they did, they did, in fact, uh, get some Jews to follow Jesus. I have. I, I'm not denying that claim. But uh, there were Jews who would follow just about anything. Uh, so, I mean, you've got, I, I compare this to Christians uh, who go off into cults. And you can say, well, no, those are the real Christians. In fact, that's what they say. Oh, we're the real Christians. I mean, we don't even have to get get too deep into uh, the occult movement. Uh, just look at Mormonism. Many Christians would say that Mormons are cults, and the Mormons would say, oh, no, we are the righteous remnant. Uh, and so I don't, I don't buy that as... As much of an argument. So he, so here's, here's what you do, right? That's that's why you got to stop just bringing up claims. We're we're getting into it. We're diving into it. And I I presented a case that presi presents a a partial case so far that I think we can say well, if anything else, we know that there is supposed to be a royal birth that serves as a supernatural sign. You you took issue with that, and you said that's that's not yeah, true. Yeah, I well, took I took issue with that uh, on on the grounds in part because no one knew about this sign. So for, I mean, you say Mary did, and it was kind of a secret. But if you if you look at say Jesus uh, when he started calling his disciples. He did not call his disciples and say, come here, I've got a, I've got a scroll here. I want to explain to you some, some text. He didn't do any of that. He didn't, his disciples didn't follow him because he was the uh, prototype of what the scriptures were describing as a Messiah and that he was what they were expecting as a Messiah. He was not. They did, they did not follow him on the basis of fulfilled prophecy. Okay, not, so not a single one of them. No one walked up to him voluntarily and said, you know, you look a lot like this guy I've been reading about. So they were, you know, yeah, there were Christians who were convinced to follow Jesus, but they were also convinced to follow every other Messiah that came through town as well. Okay, so here, here's the point. This is why you don't just go by claims. Do, do what me and what I'm trying to do and what David did earlier 
early in the show. Let, let's dive into it and see if my interpretations are correct. Am I correct about the minimal case of what Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is saying? Um, dive in, into it and see if that is the proper interpretation or not. Now, just because it's not even a mainstream view is, is irrelevant. I mean, the Bible itself... Let me ask ask this. David. Well, I mean, it's relevant to my it's relevant to my case. <laughs> so I'm I'm also making a counter case, and I I consider that a relevant detail. Yeah, I I, I didn't uh, listen listen to this then. So the book Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, under is he a different religion than what you're calling Judaism, the mainstream Judaism, or is he a part of it? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, it's a fair question. Uh, it's something that I have thought about. Uh, so, for instance, there were Jews in Jesus' day. Um, I want to say the Sadducees, but I don't. I don't have uh, material in front of me, so I don't. I don't want to say for sure, and then someone clobber me uh, later. But uh, there were uh, there were sects of the Jews. Yep. Who did not believe that the prophets were a part of sacred scripture? They believed only in the Pentateuch, and that was sacred scripture, and everything else was not. It's not to say that everything else was, you know, was crazy or you know you shouldn't look at it, uh, but it wasn't. Just, just to chime in, David's correct. It is the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in an afterlife or angels or any of that. So yeah, you were correct. Okay, great. So so you're asking me, was Isaiah a real Jew? And I would say that depends on which Jew you asked. Because even in Jesus' day, that was not settled. Okay. Okay. So I, the reason I brought that up is you don't even need um, Jesus' day or to point to Samar the Samaritans who just had the Samaritan Pentateuch and that sort of thing. Um, David, even, the, even in Isaiah's day, pretend 750 B.C., when, when Isaiah wrote it, everything, we're just assuming that, the prophets were... See, some secular scholars say, well, the prophets were chastising the Jewish establishment even back then, because for them it was all ritualistic. We do we do the temple sacrifices, we follow Torah, but the prophets were, were saying, no, that's not what it's about. Uh, it, you, right. have, you have to approach God with the right heart, and that's the most important thing. There, there was a split between the prophetic class and the priestly class. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily, like, secular scholars will say, well, see, the prophets are repudiating. No, they're not. That That's false. But the sacrificial system, they they admit the law of Torah that you have to make the sacrifices. That's good. But that's not what's, if you're just doing that with a, a wrong heart, like I'm just going through the motions, then that is putrid to God. He wants you to, the most important thing is that you are repentant and, or that you are approaching God with a truly thankful heart. It's it's not the sacrifices themselves. And that was what the prophets were elucidating or, or clarifying with their message uh, to, but yet the majority of the Jews at that time were just, or at least the leadership or the mainstream Jews were just going along. No, we're following Torah. We're doing the sacrifices. Who gives a fig? If I'm rep truly repentful or truly thankful, that doesn't matter. The prophets were were renouncing that attitude. Um, but the point of me bringing it up is that under your, the way you're treating Christians uh, as being a part of biblical Judaism, as I call it, 
Well, I could any you could do the same to Isaiah. You have to, or any other any other person that comes after the earliest writing or something like that. And that that's not. I suggest that's not. There's something wrong there. Like they're they're in the same line. They're in the okay. Stream. Well, I I would say that. Um... In the same way that you think that today's the, the bulk of today's Jews aren't real Jews, I'm not entirely sure that Isaiah was either. Yeah, uh, that's I, consistent. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'm I'm just I'm not sure of that because uh, Isaiah had some ideas. You know, Jeremiah is is another one who had some ideas that uh, I, I, the mainstream Jews did not agree with. <laughs> So, um, you know, they they were certainly not uh, looking forward to the role of suffering savior, whether that meant an individual or whether it meant um, a, the, the the Jews as a group uh, or, or the the nation of Jerusalem, as uh, many Jews would interpret it. Uh, also, many Christians, but they would they would say, "Well, that guy's out of his mind. That that is not the Judaism that we were promised." He's preaching a different uh, doctrine, if I can use some, some New Testament Christian terms to apply to these these guys. And so they they would say, yeah, he's, he's preaching another gospel, and uh, you shouldn't have to listen to him. There's a reason that all the prophets were killed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? oh, so, I appreciate that. I think that's a good... If you're, if, if you're comfortable with, with just saying well yeah isaiah is not isaiah had i the religion of isaiah isaiahism or it's like a separate religion or or the prophets are like a separate religion then you're elite yeah you you're being consistent i guess and that i would i well, and just so people aren't too horrified when they're listening i don't know if that's what i'm saying i'm saying that that is that is a possibility one that i have considered and one that makes sense I, I don't know that I am going to actually ever be able to refine that that understanding much better with the information that we have but that's kind of that's kind of where I see it there there was a bit of a schism in in Judaism and even in Jesus day you can see the various factions and so forth as they lined up behind various people and um so yeah, it it wasn't a completely monolithic culture even then, and so yes, there were some people who decided to follow Jesus, but my the point that I don't want to get lost there is even the people that followed Jesus didn't follow him because he was the Jesus of prophecy, because he didn't present himself as the Jesus of prophecy. You don't get that until Matthew starts writing, or or, or Mark. If you follow the stories, Jesus did not call people based on the fact that he was the the fulfillment of prophecy. He called people because he could do miracles or, you know, this, that, or the other. Uh, he called people who weren't terribly educated uh, in the prophecies anyway. And so I, uh, I, don't, I don't think that you can make the case that, see, Jesus is obviously the fulfillment of prophecy, and that's why people followed him. That is not why people followed him, at least not initially. It, it became a post hoc rationalization at some point, but it wasn't the initial reason. I would agree with you that it it took time uh, to develop the understanding of how Jesus uh, of seeing certain messianic prophecies. It wasn't immediate, uh, immediate in that sense, right? Like uh, you know, quoting Matthew, "Oh, Jesus went down to Egypt." That fulfills. Uh, the prophecy because it's messianic typology that that wasn't there immediately that took time to develop I don't know I would I wouldn't push it as late as 
Um, well, with that one, I, I think I would leave it for Matthew. But, but so but I think that we're in the in the in the process of agreeing here uh, that you, more or less, yeah. Yeah. So okay, so here's the last thing that I was uh, trying to get to. So David takes issue with cumulative cases in in general. Um, now, my my first response to that is is this uh, this isn't actually true. So this is the epistemology portion for you guys. I, I know people like that, uh, really like this. So in the first case, cumulative cases are used all the time. It's how science works for crying out loud. I mean, we progress our understanding and think of modern cosmology. We first we had the redshift evidence by you know discovered by Hubble. We we had the laws of thermodynamics and then you know eventually that was culminated with the cosmic microwave radiation evidences. C- cumulative cases are completely logical in and of themselves to use. Now, I'm not being fair to David here. Here's what I think, and David can correct me if I'm wrong. Here's why I think David in his blog uh, takes issue with the cumulative case. It's not cumulative cases in general. If, if I have a bunch of cumulative evidences that are 51% proven or more, or, or I can prove are more probable and then put them together, I think David would be like, that's cool, that's fine. But that's not what you're giving us here. You're giving us a cumulative case of improbable evidences, and then pretending that overall this somehow becomes more probable. Is, is that's, that? Is that? That's correct. Okay, good. So, in the first place, my my response on that end, and I actually agree with David in being. I'm I'm more along his lines. I don't understand, and I, I actually have discussed this issue because mathematically, uh, apparently that's not the case. Um, it is, it is somehow probable, and I don't understand it. I, I've gotten into discussions with Tim McGrew, and more recently, Andy Bannister, who was on Unbelievable. He, he was fascinated with my approach on the Shroud when I first converted, and with my probabilities. And he, he was mentioning this, that it's not actually true. You can use various improbable evidences, in, which are improbable in isolation, and cumulatively, that's, that somehow makes it more probable than not. I told Andy, I'm on David's side. I, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. The the only thing I can think of as to what he's talking about, which I would agree with, is that it is possible to have a series of isolated evidences, which on an individual basis are all failures. So let, let's take the resurrection. Pretend I have all the individual appearances, and I try to argue based on those appearances alone that the resurrection happened. And they're all failures. They No, in isolation, it doesn't all work. However, it could be the case that it is more probable, a resurrection is more probable than not when I look at the conjunction of these facts. So it's not just Peter had a vision or Mary had a vision, but it's, uh, or and the 12 had an appearance uh, kind of thing. It's the, the conjunction of those facts. So Mary and Peter and the 12 all had an appearance within a 20 a, a one week period a sh- very short period of time and on that level you might be able to say oh well, th- that conjunction of all three of those facts that's improbable to occur uh, to have all three of those facts occur successfully and that's that's how William Lane Craig makes his argument for the resurrection this cumulative case type thing more so than focusing on the individual Appearances and arguing for them one at a time, like what I like to do. Uh, now that that says nothing about the cumulative case being successful or not, but just at a conceptual level, you could do that. That is logical to do 
if it works, if, if the argument works. Okay, well, so just a brief response. Uh, you don't make peanut butter from a mountain of empty peanut shells. You got to have some peanut butter. I mean, you got to have some peanuts somewhere. <laughs> you know, you can't you can't just show me this pile of peanut shells and say thus peanut butter. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so we right on that. I, I would just say that the the cumulative case itself, like the conjunction of these propositions, could be a peanut. That that's that's well, what okay. But in science, that's not in fact how it works. So you you mentioned a science uh, science, and I agreed with you with the examples that you gave there. Uh, so, for instance, you make the case geologically. You don't actually need the astronomical case. You've made the case geologically. Now, the case geologically gets stronger with the astronomical case, but they're both peanuts. <laughs> you can you can bite into both of them, um, and so you're not you're not making the case geologically, and then saying, "Well, let me find some other piece of evidence so that this makes sense." Um, so cumulative cases are small cases in and of themselves. They they each each piece yeah, yeah, has yeah. to make sense. Each piece has to uh, to hold, and so if you get a bunch of pieces that don't hold, you don't have a case. It doesn't matter how many of those pieces you get. So, so yeah, so I agree one hundred percent. And for those listening, when I came to my calculation of Christianity, first of all, I I, I do it exactly the way David's uh, saying to do it here. I, I, there are no cumulative. Uh, cases or something like that that where I'm I'm taking improbable evidences in isolation and then but cumulatively uh, they're more uh, it's more probable like I, I think I like the way David said yeah a cumulative case can be a piece in and of itself that that's the only point that of clarification that I'm saying it could be a piece uh, or, or a peanut that should be used, um, even though it's it's not a peanut composed of peanuts. It's just a, a peanut overall, the the entire conjunction. That that's possible. Um, if if I use that approach, my probability might even be higher. The the only play like when I studied the resurrection, I I'm looking at them all individually. I could assess a, the cumulative case of the conjunction. Well, Mary and the women had an appearance and. Uh, Peter had an appearance as an individual, and the group of the twelve, and the five hundred, or whatever. I, I, I could put them together as a piece and say, is it more probable or not that something like that would happen? Um, that's the only thing where I, I want to make sure that I might disagree with David. Uh, but other than that, I'm 100% with you, and um, I didn't even I didn't even use cumulative cases in this sense, composed of in isolation, like mini peanuts that were improbable. Every mini peanut that I used was uh, more probable than not. So, yeah, I think mostly me and David agree. So let's let's find a let's find a way to close this thing out. But I <laughs> I do seek a note of disagreement before we do. So I uh, I apologize for the extra long issue or. For the extra long issue, uh, the podcast, you're welcome. Uh, whichever way you want to look at that, um, Mary's claim. Uh, so, if we want to connect together 
the thing that you wanted to talk about today, which is the prophecy of the, the virgin birth, mm-hmm. and then uh, Mary's song and dance in, in Luke, uh, and, and kind of use those as bookends. And, uh, you know, if, if we can just evaluate for a moment, well, how likely is that to be a fulfilled prophecy, or, or at least a piece of the, the fulfilled prophecy puzzle? And I don't, I don't see it as being at all likely. I don't, um, I don't see any reason to believe the story of Mary to begin with. Okay. Uh, so that would that would be the the first part of this. Anyone who wants to write a story saying that prophecy has been fulfilled can write that story. Uh, and there's yep. Yep. Uh, now I can't prove that it didn't happen, but I'm just saying there's there's nothing about that story except it's just a fictional follow up to a fictional prophecy um, that this thing happened. So I I can't actually give Mary's account any. Uh, points toward credibility because it's just another story that I can't uh, I can't follow. Yep. Now, who who else believed in Mary's story? Well, the only time we get to someone that I think is a legitimate person uh, writing about events is Paul. Uh, you know, Paul was a real person and he wrote things. I, so I think that you you and I both agree there. And Paul didn't seem to know anything about. Mary's story, uh, or if he knew about it, he didn't give it any credence uh, because he did not make any kind of big deal of Jesus uh, having a virgin birth. And so to me, that's a point against the idea that this prophecy had been fulfilled uh, because it seemed to be much later that the story was formed that there was a virgin birth. So, um, you know, I I understand that you you're going to want to use this as a uh, as a brick in your wall, mm-hmm. but that's peanut. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, a, a log in your fire. What? How are we going to say it? I I understand you want to use this, but I don't. Right now, you have not given me any reason to accept this as a as a plank. Okay. In the uh, ship. Yeah, no, I, I respect <laughs> that. I, I think, unfortunately, there, your reasons as laid out, and I, I notice you leave Paul for the end when I did, um, but he's sort of secondary. He doesn't. Uh, he, here's the point. So I, I think I have established my peanut because David, first of all, he's right that I can't prove uh, the virgin birth as opposed to a made up claim. Who cares? That's not a part of my argument. That doesn't matter. Pretend it is a made-up claim. It doesn't matter. Um, the fact is, there is that, that claim, and when I get to the end, uh, it's going to be that Jesus is the only one that has these made-up claims or and/or true claims, whatever you want to say. Uh, that's how the argument, the circumstantial argument, is going to work. Because we would, ex- I'm, I'm trying to say, we would expect others. If it's so easy to make up these claims to fulfill these prophecies, we would expect at least one or two other messianic candidates who could also make the same claims for themselves right but but a counter quick counter to that is they didn't understand what uh isaiah said as referring to a virgin birth anyway so no one would have made that up because they wouldn't have known what you were talking about virgin birth what prophecy of a virgin birth you don't you haven't even established that there was a prophecy of a virgin birth so, so here's the thing. Like, this is why when, whenever I have, like, a compound thing, 
you like to get in there after the first one. Like that's that's right where I was going to go. So I started with the fulfillment aspect because that's where you started, and then I was just going to go into the about the prophecy itself. Is it actually a peanut? Um, and yeah, my peanut. If you're thinking my peanut, my brick. Let's say that it sounds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my prick. Oh, my listeners, you're all 12. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. It's a virgin birth. Sure. I'm sorry, you, you, you didn't get it. I, I specifically said we can't know that. That That isn't my case. Right, but, what, but your case does it, uh, it, depend on it being a claim. And what? I'm saying you haven't even established that it's a claim. Well, here's here's... I do think I have established my claim. Here, Here is my claim, and, and don't interrupt, because I'm gonna be fair to you and say that you deny my claim, even my claim, but my claim is not that it's a virgin birth. It's that Isaiah 7.14 is predicting that a royal child would be born as a supernatural or miraculous sign to the house of David that God is with us. Uh, that That's my brick that I'm arguing for. Not that, I don't know, I'm not specifying as to what form that supernatural sign would would take? Is it a virgin birth? Is it uh, a barren uh, child being born, or or some other supernatural element that was involved with the birth of this child? It doesn't have to be the nature of the child. Jewish people don't take it that way. Uh, you know, I, I could say, well, it's the star over Bethlehem or something like that, and that's the supernatural sign that occurred at the birth of Jesus to testify that God is with the house of David. Um, so I, my claim is more nuanced and, and minimal. Uh, it doesn't involve the virgin birth, but it's consistent with it. Um, but David, I wanted to be fair to David. Oh, yeah. So, But David did tackle that brick. Um, I forget how. He, yeah. So he, he doesn't buy that it has to be a miraculous sign. It could be a momentous event. And then later on, he confused me by qualifying and saying, well, a mundane event. But I, th- I think... He meant mundane to our eyes, but right, in the eyes right. Of just really, experience. just something really important, really big. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, that's his take. I, I think no. I'm gonna stick. I think it's more probable to say the miraculous element is a part of this brick. David's best point is that no, it, at best you can say it's a momentous thing. So, so judge on that. Read the entire. Read Isaiah chapter seven, uh, the entire context and. If, if I would also say read beyond that, read Isaiah chapter seven through twelve and discover for yourself. See, you know Isaiah chapter eight. Okay, there's this child, but he's not named Emmanuel. He's named Nahar, and he doesn't f- fulfill up. Like the the consistent trend, the overall context is that this this child was bo- was prophesied to be born as a supernatural sign to the house of David. They were expecting that. Uh, the child is a born in Isaiah chapter 8, but it's the wrong guy. He's got a different name, and he doesn't live up to the prophecy. So then going into Isaiah chapter 9, uh, which is where, you know, it's okay, so it's a few, we're thinking a future uh, Messiah with the, with those names, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then Isaiah cha- up to Isaiah chapter 11, it describes a whole bunch of great stuff he's going to do, like, uh, you know, bring peace to the world and blah, 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 and establish God's kingdom. This, and then Isaiah chapter 12 is, is they're singing a song of praise, like, oh, thank you, he's done, he's done it, the child is here, and, and that sort of thing. So that that's the overall context. I, I hope David appreciates that I, I did read the entire context. I'm trying to provide the biblical context for the, the listeners. Uh, read, it, read it for yourself. See what you think. Jews disagree. They separate the Isaiah 9 and, and Isaiah 7. So I'm, 
I'm bringing it, I'm linking these in the same context because that is how I read it. Uh, but David could have found Jewish scholars who, no, no, Isaiah 9 and 11, those are, those are Messianic prophecies, but not Isaiah 7. That's, that's just about a, a royal child and they interpret it in different ways, Hezekiah or this guy in Isaiah 8. Um, I'm saying read, I, I link these and, and you read it for yourself and decide for yourself if I've got a brick or if I'm blowing fluff uh, or peanuts or something. <laughs> uh, so yeah. I'll, sure. I'll so I will, I will take the uh, last word because it is my right this week. Uh, and so um, it, it, look, Sure, you can interpret that way, but you would have to have a reason to. There's no reason to believe that the people who heard these passages and read them originally interpreted them that way. We don't see any evidence that anyone interpreted it that way. Um, so if you ask the Jews today uh, for them to interpret your scripture, which is a thing that I have done, uh, they don't interpret it that way. <laughs> and... Um, you can say, well, thank you, Mr. Jew. I can't believe how wrong you are. Uh, or maybe you can learn something. Um, and uh, so so, you're not learning anything if you come to a different... Okay. Well, I mean, you're not if you actually ask the Jews to interpret their scripture for them. Uh, you know, it would be a little bit like a Muslim coming to you to uh, interpret uh, the New Testament for them. And then you do. And then they say, you couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> these scriptures clearly talk about Muhammad. Um, so that, that is, that is kind of the arrogance that, that goes on, I think here. And so if we had some, maybe some Jewish history of, uh, people interpreting those scriptures this way before the Christians came along, that might be, you know, something, you know, you say that at least some of the mainstream Jews thought this this is what they meant, but we don't have any evidence that they, that anyone thought this is what it meant. Um, and so, quickly to give, and you're still going to get the last word. But remember, the the Jews that you're talking about, we don't we don't know. It's true that I don't know what I'm what it actually meant to them, but it's the same is true of you. We don't have writings of Jews from 700. Agreed. BC. We don't we don't know what the one calling himself Isaiah meant. It, and we don't have his explanation of it. So, so pointing to like, and, and we don't have anyone terribly close to the time yeah. giving some explanation uh, of it. And so, that's all I wanted to say. So yeah. You know, so, uh, uh, you you and I both agree there, <laughs> and uh, I think that's why it's all the more strange uh, when when people become terribly convinced of this non-standard reading. Uh, that this must be what it means. Furthermore, it's the only thing that makes sense of what it means. And I think I think that becomes a very a very odd case to make. And I am yeah. I, I will say little more about that because once again I've got to wait for Dale to develop his argument uh, bef <laughs> before I can dig in deeper. And so uh, what what I will just go ahead and declare is that since Dale has a couple of cases to make uh, next week will be his week and it'll be his week until he is done making his case and and we'll see what we what we can make of it uh, but I think with what I've been given I, I think I've done the best I can with and I think the, with the shells job. that I've got <laughs> I think you did a good job yeah but there's there's something for people to consider here and I'm Dale shut up it David's closing speech I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> 
I'm going to put tape on my mouth. <laughs> Next thing you know, you'll be banning yourself from the podcast. So, no, don't do not do that. <laughs> so... I'll just put tape on my mouth. <laughs> I can live with that. Um Send pictures. Uh, so, at any rate, uh, folks, it's it's been fun. Uh, sorry, my voice is a little bit uh, off. I'm not lethargic. I'm. Uh, I was very excited about this show, and I enjoyed it. I, ju- I just can't seem to talk very much right now. So, uh, what's about to happen? A little bit of inside baseball is uh, Dale and I are going to break for some lunch, and uh, we're going to come back and uh, record with. Um, What's his face? Uh, Barry, Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz. May the Schwartz be with you. <laughs> um, we're gonna <laughs> we're going to uh, come back and have a conversation with Barry Schwartz, and I'm going to do my best to uh, get that podcast up today. Today being tomorrow for us. So whenever you. Um, listen to this so if if you don't see the didn't see the barry schwartz in the feed when you listen to this look uh look again because i'm gonna i'm gonna try to get it in there pretty close to the time i get this one in there and yeah and, and one thing just thought as an uh, an announcement so with with the shroud um so i i'm i am still willing i know there's been confusion but i i never said i wanted to cancel the debate with alan i i'm still willing to even do it if, if he wants to it i mean there's no pressure I, i've always said if he doesn't want to do it which it seems like he he doesn't then that's that's fine that doesn't mean he he doesn't deserve to be considered or, or anything like that um but either way it, i've given him till tomorrow to let me know if, if he does want to do it he can email me um but if 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 not that's fine i'm still going to address his comments, as well as uh, some of your others that I've seen on the boards uh, in a listener feedback episode. So uh, either way, you'll get some kind of response from me on on some of the comments that have been going around or some of the, the criticism of my Shroud series. Sure. And I, and I invite um, people who, even people who are not interested in uh, the Shroud series, because, you know, maybe it's just a one-sided lecture. This podcast coming up with Barry Schwartz, uh, yeah. well, it won't be a debate. Andrew will be uh, providing the other side, and there'll be, uh, I think, some user, uh, listener feedback um, uh, and questions questions of Schwartz. Am I right about that? Uh, yeah, so I, I worked into the, like, the questions themselves are really from the audio. Like, you know, Tyler B., you always uh, scold me, for example, for not mentioning the long arms, and I, I've given him the answers to that, uh, two answers to that, um, but I, I mentioned why it's not in the podcast. It's not appropriate yet. So finally, uh, Tyler, you will get your response with Barry. It's one of the questions. Uh, look out for that. You'll get your answer. Okay, so uh, there is there is something to look forward there. So if you have not heard the Barry Schwartz special, uh, look in the feed for that. If it's not in the feed when you look, look the next day. I will get it. I'm one man, and I still have I still have to work this weekend. So at any rate, uh, that will be enough uh, for now, and we'll uh, come back next week and um, see if we can find some semblance of an argument for a messianic prophecy. We'll talk to you then. All right. Bye bye. <laughs>